Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. 
After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favourably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbour and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Thanks, Paul. What I realised I didn't explain to Anne and to the people going out for the youth talk was that the sermon's going to be in two parts, so the youth talk can, can still go on, but we'll be doing sort of the, bio, the first half of the Bible reading and then sort of the first half of the sermon, then a song in the middle, then second part of the Bible reading, second part of the talk. So if you're going out for the youth talk and you hear singing, don't worry, you haven't gone overtime. That was my mistake for not explaining that. Just, just mindful that sometimes preaching through longer passages as we, as we do throughout Exodus, it's, it's helpful just to be able to sort of break things up just to help us take them in a bit more. So we'll see how we go. If you don't like it, feel free to write politely on the contact card and <laughs> let, let me know. All right, have, you, have you ever been given a job to do or, or put in a situation and, and you've just felt way out of your depth? You, you've, you've just thought to yourself, I can't do this. I realise this sounds like the start of, re- of a resignation speech. That's not what it is, so don't worry about that. Maybe it's a, like a, it's a complex role at work that you've got or a, a tough assignment at school or just a difficult stage of life that you're going through. If that rings true for you, then perhaps you can relate a bit to the way Moses would have felt in Exodus chapters 3 and 4 with the impossible task that God has given him. It's a profoundly encouraging passage for us to take to heart as we play our own part today in God's rescue mission, because it teaches us not to rely on our strength, but on who God is. So if you missed last week, we've started a new series looking at the book of Exodus, looking at the first half of Exodus over the next few weeks, uh, really unpacking the journey that God leads his people on from slavery to worship, God redeeming his treasured possession, which is his people. We saw last week in chapters one and two, God's faithful promise keeping in growing his people and also the beginning of his plan for deliverance that he's bringing about. And so chapter two ends with God's concern as he hears and he sees, he hears the cry of his suffering people. And so the next scene we then see is at the start of chapter three, God appearing to Moses in a burning bush And he tells Moses pretty much exactly what we read at the end of chapter 2. I've seen what's happening to my people. I'm concerned for them. I've heard their cry. And by identifying himself there in verse 6 as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which he actually does four times in these two chapters, God is not only identifying himself with this people, but also with the promises that he made to Abraham all those years ago. I'm going to rescue my people, God tells Moses. I'm going to take them to a good place, to the land that I promised to Abraham. And, you know, Moses is probably listening to this thinking, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea, God. I really like the sound of that. And God says at the end, oh, and by the way, pack your bags. I'm sending you to do it. So you're probably, you're probably expecting that Moses feels a little bit, a little bit uncertain as he hears this. It's been 40 years since he escaped from Egypt, and he's been working as a shepherd in the middle of nowhere ever since then. And even all those years ago, when he tried to stand up for just one Israelite, it almost got him killed. I was thinking about how difficult it must be to to go 
to a land where you haven't been for 40 years and to see people that you've never, that you haven't seen for 40 years. And then I realized that about a week ago, Rachel, who's service leading, posted on Facebook about going back to Tasmania for the first time in about 40 years and talking to school friends that she hadn't seen ever since then. So if you can appreciate the gravity of that story without doing the maths and adding up Rachel's age, that'd be much appreciated, I'm sure. Um, but if we think that something like that's impressive, we look at Moses, and we've got Moses who um, doesn't have Instagram or Facebook or anything like that to keep on top of what's going on in Egypt. Uh, I'm pretty sure Rachel's family hadn't been experiencing slavery and genocide for four centuries before then either. So this, this is an even bigger situation that Moses has got here. And he's understandably overwhelmed. But as we'll see, this rescue mission isn't about what Moses can do. It's about what God is going to do. And this is personal for God. His people are being oppressed. In fact, not simply his people, but as we'll see when Paul comes up and reads chapter 4, in verse 22, God calls the people of Israel his firstborn son. And so his message to Pharaoh is, get your hands off my son or I'll kill yours. That's the message. And so understandably, Moses is a bit reluctant with this sudden lifestyle change that he's being thrown into. And he asks God in verse 11, who am I to do this? Who am I to bring the, to go and to tell the people of, of Israel, let alone to tell Pharaoh to let them go out of Egypt? He would have remembered that last time around, Pharaoh had tried to kill him, and the Israelites weren't exactly in a rush to follow him either. So how does God reply? This is what he says. Moses, you've got what it takes. Believe in yourself. If you want this badly enough, you can do it. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that because it's not about who Moses is. It's about who God is. I will be with you, God tells Moses. And so Moses then asks God, what if they ask what your name is? What should I tell them? Now, when Moses talks about asking for God's name, it's more than just a, a word that God identifies himself by. I'm like, my name is Mark. This is Tim over here. This is Steve over here. The, the sense he's giving, it's really more of the essence of who someone is. And God's answer to Moses is, I am who I am. I am who I am. Or I will be what I will be. It's not a time-bound expression in the Hebrew language, which is probably deliberate because it shows that God is the same in the past, in the present, and in the future. So the God who made promises to Abraham all those years ago is the same God appearing to Moses now and the same God who is going to keep those promises in the future. And what it also shows is that God is the only point of reference to describe or to limit himself. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself. It's a bit like if I was describing Sean, I'd be, I'd be saying, look, he's, he's married to Kathy, he works here, these are his kids, he's about this high, all, all that sort of thing. We can't really do that with God, can we? We can't describe God in those sort of terms. There's a, a real consistent perfection to God's nature, both in terms of his goodness and of his power. So what God does and what he says is completely in line with who he is, which means that when he makes a promise, we can be certain that he's going to deliver on it. 
If you've been looking at the Exodus studies in your home groups over this term, what you might have seen in, in last week's study is a very interesting passage in John's Gospel, in chapter 8, uh, where we see Jesus is having a chat with some hostile Pharisees, and, and they ask him about who he is and where he's from. And Jesus' reply to them is, um, in chapter 8, verse 58, he says to them, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Which we might just take to be a, a grammatically incorrect sentence, but in fact, it's a clear reference uh, to the way that God identifies himself in Exodus chapter 3. And if we need any further proof that that's the case, we then see that the Pharisees try to stone Jesus after he says these words. So clearly they understand that Jesus is claiming to be God when he makes that reference. Back to Exodus though, and God reveals his name to Moses here in verse 15. Now the Hebrew word is Yahweh. So whenever in our NIV Bibles, whenever we see the Lord written in capital letters, that's where this divine name of God is being used. So God has revealed his name to his people through Moses. And we also see something of who God is just through the interactions that he has with Moses as well. We see that God is a holy God. Moses can't just casually approach God as though they're, they're equals because they're not. And yet, God does speak personally with Moses and he relates to his people. He calls them my people. So God is holy and yet he's also deeply personal. And that shapes the way that we approach God. We don't just approach God casually as though we're, we're equal with him, but we don't approach him impersonally either, just as though we're going through the motions, as if God is more of a force than he is personal. So we don't let his personality stop us from treating him as holy, and we don't let his holiness stop us from treating him personally. We have to keep both of these things firmly in view. So God te then tells Moses what's going to happen next. The elders of Israel will listen to Moses. And we actually see that happening at the end of chapter 4. In fact, they don't just listen to Moses, but they worship God in response to what Moses tells them. And so this movement from slavery to worship that the book of Exodus is all about has begun. But not Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to resist. And so God says, I will strike Egypt. And not only will the Egyptians let you go, but they'll give you riches as well. So the rescue plan is in place. But before we understand God's saving purposes, both in Moses' day and in our own day today as well, we have to understand who the God is who brings those rescue plans into place. An awesome, unconstrained, holy, and yet also deeply personal and deeply loving God. That is the God who we call to. So I'm going to step down now. The band is now going to lead us in song. We're going to respond to what we've heard so far by bringing our praises before this holy God who we cry out to. So we're going to stand and sing with the band, and then Paul is going to come up and lead us in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, 
throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. 
So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Thanks, Paul, for powering through that very dramatic series of events in that chapter. Uh, So Moses has asked God, who am I? Who am I to, to undertake this rescue mission? And the next question he asks here is, what will I do? What if the Israelites don't believe me? Or what if they don't listen to me? Or they don't believe, God, that you appeared to me? And again, he's missed the point here, hasn't he? Because it's not about what Moses can and can't do. It's about what God is going to do. And so God gives him some party tricks, gives him a a staff that can turn into a snake, a hand that can get leprosy and then get healed again, and water that can turn into blood. But of course, these, these aren't really tricks, are they? They're signs. Signs of God's power. Verse 5, so the people of Israel may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, has appeared to them, which as we get down to verse 31, we see that they do believe that when they see the signs. I mentioned just earlier the echo from John's gospel with Jesus saying, I am. There's another echo here as well, because John refers to Jesus' miracles as signs, because again, they're not cool tricks, but they're demonstrations of who Jesus is his power, and also his purposes. Jesus multiplied bread loaves to show that he was indeed the bread of life. He gave sight to a blind man to show that he was indeed the light of the world. And he raised Lazarus from the dead to show that he was indeed the resurrection and the life. And after writing about Jesus' signs, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection from the dead, John John finishes with these words at the end of chapter 20. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So signs are given so that people believe. Jesus' death and resurrection are God's ultimate act of salvation, which the exodus from Egypt is pointing us towards. Jesus offers us life in his name. If we believe that he is who he says he is, the Son of God who died for our sins. God rescued his son, Israel, from slavery in Egypt, but he sent his son, Jesus, to lay down his life so that we could have life, so that we could come into a relationship with God, so that we can approach a holy God, not as enemies, but as precious children. How wonderful that is. The gospel really shows us beyond any doubt that it's, not, it's all about what God has done for us. It's not about what we have to offer God. That said, though, God does expect faithfulness and obedience from his people, not because our obedience is enough to, to make us right with God, but because it's an, a right expression of us truly living for God as his people. And so the next question that Moses asks is, what will I say? I've never been eloquent. I've always been slow of speech, slow of tongue. And once again, 
Moses has completely missed the point. Because the question here is not what Moses is going to say so much as what God is going to speak through Moses. The God who made Moses' mouth is going to be able to, to put the right words into it. And that's an encouragement for us, isn't it, when we worry about what we're going to say when particular situations come up. What am I going to say when someone asks me about my faith, when they make fun of me for being a Christian, when they ask me difficult questions about the Bible? Those situations might intimidate us, but they don't phase the powerful, holy God whose Holy Spirit works in us at all times. And when Moses continues to worry, God sends his eloquent brother Aaron to go and meet him and to speak for him. And so there are no more excuses for Moses. But God's angry at Moses by this point because he's told Moses who he is and he expects a faithful, obedient response from Moses. Which brings us to the, the colourful episode in verses 24 and 26 that you're probably waiting for me to get to. And while we don't have enough information to, to completely fully understand what's going on here, the point of the incident is clearly about the importance of obedience. So God has made a distinction in the previous verses between the, the sons of Israel and the sons of Egypt. And the difference, of course, is that the Israelites are children of God's covenant. And what's the primary sign of that covenant? It's circumcision, isn't it? Circumcision of the males. And yet Moses has disobeyed God by not having his son circumcised. And so judgment is only averted by the quick thinking of Moses' wife who comes to the rescue with her obedience. So we can add her to the list of women who have saved the day so far in Exodus. It's turning into quite a long list. God's saving work rests on who he is and what he does. But our job is to respond faithfully and obediently in light of that. That was true for Moses, and it's true for us today as well. So what's happening in chapters 3 and 4? Moses has gone from leading a, a flock of sheep in the middle of nowhere to leading a nation of over a million people. And so the scene is set for God's rescue mission. We have an awesome God we have his enslaved people. We have his chosen deliverer. The scene is set for what is going to come next. And we find ourselves today, here in Allgate, in a situation not entirely different to the situation that Moses found himself in, knowing that there are millions of people in need of God's rescuing and knowing that we have a role in making that happen. The number of Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt is probably, was probably pretty close to the number of people in our state who are enslaved by sin, not knowing the freedom that Jesus alone offers, not knowing they need to repent, to turn from their sins, and to accept the free offer of forgiveness that Jesus gives to all of us, that Jesus alone offers. It's an offer that we're all equally dependent on. Even if we're, just to, to focus on the, the Stirling Allgate census region, which also includes, I think, Bridgewater, Palmdorf, Crafers, a few, few other suburbs, I'd say probably about 80% of us would live in that region. There are 20,000 people in that region. And half of those people explicitly identify as no religion. And even of the other half, there's probably really only a small percentage, maybe, maybe 5%, 
who are attending church and really showing any evidence of a saving faith in Jesus as best as we can humanly tell, knowing that ultimately it's God who's the judge of those things and not us. And so we're estimating, but that's, that's pretty close to, to 20,000 people who need saving in our small section of the globe alone. Wouldn't you love us to make a massive dent on that as a church? So even if we set the goal of seeing just 1% of our region come to faith in Jesus, that's 200 people who need to hear and respond to the gospel. So we'd be doubling our Sunday gathering size if that happened. It's an overwhelming goal, isn't it, when we think about that? And like Moses, when we, when we think about it, we recognize our own inadequacy pretty quickly. We recognize that it's a task that is quite simply beyond us. But then we remember that this momentous task of seeing the hills won for Jesus, it rests not on who we are, but on who God is, on what God has done and on what God is going to do as well. And so our job is to respond faithfully, knowing that just as God promised to be with Moses, Jesus promises to be with us today by his Holy Spirit as we go out and as we seek to make disciples of all nations. And so we prayerfully trust that God's Spirit is going to be at work through us, both as individuals in our witness and as a church family together as we seek to witness to the surrounding community. And so we step out in faith. We run a youth life series at Basement because we're, we're confident that God is able to work through it. We participate in the Sterling Christmas pageant. We organize a big carols night. We have Christmas services. And we use those as opportunities, trusting that God will use them to help us to connect with people in our surrounding communities and to be able to share the life-changing news of Jesus with them. We're putting plans in place next year about what mission is going to look like in the life of our church. And we're thinking not just our local context, but we're really thinking what does mission look like beyond our borders as well. So we have Cam and Mara and Phillips who have got plans in place long term to go over to Namibia and to do mission work over there. They've got some really exciting plans in place. It's going to be great to see that unfold over the years. I think in three weeks' time, we've got Arthur and Tammy Davis from CMS um, who are doing mission work over in Tanzania, working with the Christian University student group over there. They're going to be over here in three weeks' time sharing about the work that they're doing there and the way that they see God at work and how we can be best praying for them and supporting them in that. As a church, we're on about loving God, loving each other, and loving everyone. And seeking for, for people to, to hear the gospel and respond to it, that is really central to what it means for us to love everyone. But those other two loves lay a really important foundation as well. Because people desperately need to hear the gospel, but they also really need to see the gospel at work, making a difference in our lives. To see a church community who are loving God with all our hearts, who are loving each other and caring well for each other, both on a, a Sunday, during the week, and in every part of our lives. And so everything that we do as a church contributes to these mission goals that we have. It, the, the big roles, the tiny parts that each, each one of us plays, it's all so important for the mission plans and purposes that we have. 
But yet we know that people aren't going to be saved by a good vision statement. We could have the best vision statement in the world, the best programs in the world. We know, though, that it's not ultimately up to our cleverness and our work to do this any more than Moses could have walked into Egypt and led the Israelites out all on his own. And so as we think about the task ahead of us, let's not be weighed down by our own inability to do it, but let's remember the God who is with us in this holy, powerful, sovereign, and yet approachable, relational, wanting people to to come to a saving faith, and the God who gave his own firstborn son so that people can come to faith and can be saved through knowing him. Let's live faithfully, obediently, and prayerfully in light of that. Let's see what happens. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are holy, you are awesome, you are beyond words to describe, and yet you also are relational. You love us. You love us as children. You want more people to come and to know you and to experience this right relationship with you. Help us to relate to you as you've revealed yourself to us, not to make up our own thoughts on who you are, but to to look at what you say about yourself here in Scripture and to know that you are a holy and awesome God, but one who we can come before as our loving Father. As we think about the job ahead of us and all the people in our community, in our country, in our world who don't yet know you and, and seem so far from you, as we reflect on our own shortcomings and how how beyond us this task of reaching people for you is. Help us not to reflect on who we are, but to reflect on who you are and to trust you to be at work as we go and proclaim your name to all people. In Jesus' name, amen.